Well, we are in a series, Only God, uh, 10 weeks in Psalms, 10 Psalms that you picked out that you wanted to hear uh, spoken about a little bit. So uh, today it's Psalm 27. But before I begin, let me welcome a couple of people. We're so happy to have Ruth Hager back with us. She had surgery and she was gone for a long time. And uh, so it's good to have you, Ruth, and uh, to have you back where you belong, back where you belong. And we're also really happy to have uh, Will Perez back with us. Will, who was caring for his mother as his mother, uh, you know, these last months, for, it's been a while uh, now, who had a steady decline, and those of us with older parents know what that is like, and he was the primary caregiver and basically uh, did everything for Luz, his dear mother, who went home to be with the Lord just a week ago today. So, Will, it is so good to see you, man. We have missed you so much. Yeah, I mean, we really have. So, good stuff, good stuff. Well, I'm glad that you're here with us today. I read a quote this week from one of the characters that American fantasy writer George R.R. R. Martin, who cre- created uh, uh, the voice of one of the characters in, in his book, uh, A Game of Thrones, which is made into a very popular HBO series. Uh, but I was reading the quote from one of the, those characters, Bran Stark, who was talking to his father, who had just pontificated on the virtues of courage to his son. And he writes, uh, he writes this, after his father talk, talks, it says, Bran thought about it. Can a man still be brave if he's afraid? That is the only time a man can be brave, his father told him. Now, when you think of King David in the Old Testament, who wrote the psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm 27, I don't know what you think about, but I can tell you what I think about right away. Whenever I think, and there's so many things you can think about with King David. The thing I think about, and I guess it's because when I was young, you know, when you're young, you have these, uh, you remember stuff like when you're six that you don't remember anything else about being six, but you remember you know, like one thing. One of the things that I remember, I was six or seven years old, was hearing the story of David when he went up against that big, ugly, giant Goliath and, and how he went out there and how he was so offended. He was literally offended, even as a, as a teenage boy, that this big hairy ape was coming out before the, 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 the armies of the Lord God Jehovah and was basically thumbing his nose at them. And he was outraged. And Saul, cowering, you know, behind the lines, wouldn't, he was the king, he was the guy that should have went out and faced him, but he was too afraid. And David just stepped forward, and I think, you know, with the exuberance of youth, he said, you know what, I'll go. I'll, this, what he's doing is ending today. It's over today. My God will deliver me. This has got to stop, and it stops today. Now, I got to tell you something. Listen, even if you are a moderate storyteller, when, when you got a six-year-old boy and you're telling him about this kind of stuff, I mean, there's nothing better. I mean, that is the ultimate superhero. You know, today we worship all these other fake superheroes. This was a real superhero. You know, this was a guy who, who, who did something that he should have never been capable of as a, a middle teenage boy. And I remember it so vividly. And I wanted to be a man of courage when I grew up, I remember. But as I grew up, I, I remember being in high school, and, you know, basically, most of the time, I really wasn't. I wasn't courageous. In fact, I wasn't brave enough to really stand out as an out-and-out Christian, even in high school. I was always kind of hanging back a little bit. But when I come to Psalm 27... I find out something. I find out that David, and we're going to see in a minute, though courageous oftentimes, was not always filled with courage. Though he rushed out that day to meet Goliath head on, there were other battlegrounds in his life that sometimes, well, made him a little nervous. Made him a lot nervous, I would say. Um... Now, I I would never compare my enemies to the ones that David faced. Whenever you read a psalm of David, you always think, 
I don't know about you, but I always think, well, what, you know, what were the circumstances of him writing this? It's like any songwriter. You say, oh, gee, you know what? Why did she write this song about, you know, she must have broken up with a guy, you know, last month, and that's why she's writing this song or whatever. And you always kind of wonder, what was the occasion? And sometimes in Scripture, they, it has the occasion. In Psalm 56, uh, there's the occasion of when David was taken prisoner, you know, by, uh, by the Philistines in Gath. Anyway, um, they don't, there's no occasion here, but you know what, as I was thinking about it, it really doesn't matter. It honestly really doesn't matter what episode of his life it was from. And why would I say that? Because if you know anything about David's life, it could have been any one of a number of occasions. Because it seems that David was continually in trouble. He was always in trouble. If you read his life, he's always struggling. He's always wrestling. When he, when he was young and he becomes, the, uh, just before he became king, what was he doing? He was running away from Saul who wanted to kill him. Remember? The guy who he, you know, went out to meet the giant instead of. And even though he hadn't done anything bad to Saul, Saul was after him, even before he took the throne. And as soon as he becomes a king, and he's a young king uh, in Israel, his enemies begin to attack him even before he establishes himself. And the next thing you know, he has to flee the capital. And he's out in the wilderness running for his life again. And even, you, you know, fast forward to the end, kind of towards the last chapter of his life, last chapters, he's an old man. And his son Absalom tries to wrestle the throne from him. And there he goes again, out into the wilderness, running for his life. That's how it went for David. That's why in verse 2 he says, The wicked advance against me to devour me. Uh, though an army besiege me, he's talking about in verse 3. Okay, uh, I, I, He mentions oppressor, uh, oppressors in verse 11. Those who are spouting malicious accusations in verse 12. It, 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 that's why I say it really could have been any time at all that he was talking about. Psalm 56, which I just referred to, uh, it said this, Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit all day long. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. All day, you know, see how you get the impression that it was kind of all day, all day long this was happening. All day long, they twist my words. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, hoping to take my life. You know what it seems like if, if you read David's life? It seems like it wasn't every now and then, it wasn't every few years, several times in his life, several major times. It seems that his enemies were pressing against him 24-7 throughout his entire life. Doesn't it? Throughout his entire life, he was always fighting off assassination attempts. He always had to deal with rumors about invading armies coming into Israel from outside their borders. He was always the target of malicious gossip, even outright lies. He was always looking over his shoulder at the guy with the wide smile who was plotting to take him down. Listen, when you know that thousands upon thousands of people mostly outside your borders, but sometimes inside, and some even on the palace staff itself, would love nothing better than to see your severed head on a stick parading through downtown Jerusalem. I would, imag I would imagine that that would lead to a certain amount of stress in your life on a continuous basis. Your Majesty, the chef has just made you this brand new, delicious uh, uh, delightful food. It's brand new. It's a new recipe. It's for you. Yeah, you, you take a bite first, and then, and then I'll eat the rest of it. I mean, that was his whole life. That's the way it went. Stressful. Stressful. Welcome to my life. <laughs> now, look, I, you, know, you look at this, and you, I, I, don't know, I don't think anybody's battling physical assassination attempts here, but I bet there are a number of people who, at your job, would love to see your job killed off, and that you go out the door with it, and you be removed from the scene. 
I will bet that there are more than a few of you who have been the target of malicious gossip. Maybe because, you know what? She, you got the lead in the play, but she tried out for the lead too, but you got it, and now she's totally ticked off at you, so she's going behind your back, and she's telling everybody what a terrible, horrible person you are, and th telling people things that you did that you never really even did. See, I've heard that happens every now and then. Maybe because of continual confrontations in your own home, you may feel unsafe. Maybe, maybe not physically unsheltered, but often you feel like running away. David, in his time on earth, learned a few things about stress. Now, first, one of the things that he learned, I think, David, was that uh, uh, he's saying, look, if my life is any indicator of the pattern of the lives of others, then I just have to assume that life does not just contain battles, that life is a battleground. It's happening all the time. On the battlefield, if you think about it, there's certain things that always happen when you're on the battlefield. I think, it, I think David was, in his assumption, is probably correct. Uh, there's a couple of things about the battlefield. When you're on the battlefield, you're always in conflict. There's, there's, there's no rest. Your adrenaline is always pumping. You're, not, you're, not, you're never going to sit down and have a smoke in the middle of a battlefield, are you? You're always in danger. You're always being tested. There never seems to be a time of rest. Can anybody relate to that, by the way? Okay, any? I, you don't have to say amen. You can just kind of move a hand or something like that, okay? It's no, amen is okay because you've come through, maybe you've come through it, but it's really, really true, isn't it? There never seems to be a time of rest. Then he learned something else. David learned something else. He said, honestly, all I really want, okay, this is a great general. David was a great general, yes? Great general. He was, he was a military hero. He was, you know, the king. He had many, many responsibilities. And he gets to the end, and you can see it in this psalm. We're going to look at it for, for just a minute. He gets into here, and he says, you know what I really want? I want peace. I really want peace. Like in Gladiator. Did you ever see the movie Gladiator? And, and the great general, he says, I just want to go home and, and, and raise tomatoes. I just, want, I just want to raise tomatoes. Really? You don't want to be Caesar? No, I just want to go home. And just, and just relax. That's what I want. You know, a, a, a warrior on the battlefield, he, he wants peace. He wants to go home. He wants to drive through town, stop if he feels like he'd like to, to have a beer and some hot wings and watch the football game if he so desires. He wants to go home that night and get in bed with clean sheets. He wants to be in a place where he is loved, and he is accepted, and he is received. And above all else, he wants to be in a place where someone is not trying to blow his head off. See, that's what a warrior wants. He wants to go home. So in Psalm 27, David says, I have a feeling, I have this feeling that I'm never going to be removed from the battlefield. That it's never going to end. I have this awful feeling that someone will continually have me in their crosshairs. That's the bad news. What do you do with the bad news? I mean, what do you do when, if, if you come to that realization, you're going, gee, you know what, maybe that's my problem. You know, I just, I, you know, th yes, that's, that's it. That's, that's kind of bad news. What do, you, what do you do with the bad news? Well, for a lot of people, uh, they just kind of, I think, psych themselves up. David wouldn't do this, though. They psych themselves up. They keep repeating things like, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. And then, you know, they're going to, you know, click their ruby heels together three times, and they're going to be back in Kansas. See, if they say it enough times, they'll talk themselves into really believing that, that they're going to end up back in Kansas. David knew that he was never going back to Kansas. Never. He knows trying to imagine being on an idyllic Kansas farm isn't going to make the battle go away. So you know what else he decides not to do? He decides not to lie to himself. Because that's what a lot of people do when they're in the battle. He decides not to lie to himself. He doesn't say, you know what? There is no battle. There's no battle out there. There aren't dying men all around me. There isn't horror all around me. I'm not in danger. The people over that ridge don't want to kill me. You know, I'm smart. 
and I'm good, and doggone it, those people over there like me. I think if they ever got to know me. No, they won't. They want to kill you. They want to kill you, and David knew that. And yet, and yet, miraculously, at the exact same time, he found a way to go home. He found a way to rise above it all. And he sings to his readers a song that basically goes, I've arrived at a place in my life where the constant danger and the constant battling no longer paralyzes me. It just doesn't. So, what was the secret? What did he discover? What did he do? How did David find safety and peace and clean sheets in the middle of the battlefield. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. And you know what? He starts off really strong. Adrian just read this passage. And he starts off by saying this. This is about as strong as you can get, right? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I mean, could you... You feeling the power, folks? You feeling this guy? He's, he's getting pumped up here, right? Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war, it's the worst thing in the world, though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. It almost sounds a little, just a touch arrogant in a sense. Don't you? I mean, it's, he's a little like, almost like a little over the top. You know, he's reading, not, are you kidding me? Bring it on. I mean, folks, this is the kind of speech, though, that you want to hear when you're 500 yards away from, a, from an army that's about to start charging after you. After the death of Moses, Joshua was chosen to lead the people into the promised land and face the giants that they already knew were there uh, and, and who kind of stood in their way of possessing the land fully. And I get the feeling, I just get the feeling that Joshua, the night before, they were about to step over the Jordan into the promised land, and then basically all hell was going to break loose, and they knew that as soon as they stepped over, um, that he was uh, starting to have second thoughts. <laughs> he was starting to get a little nervous, you know, it was like, uh, wait a minute. And, and, and God comes to him the night before he steps over the Jordan, and he says this, now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so, Joshua, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Gee, who said that some years later? It's, it's, it's just bringing a bell. Verse 6, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Have I not commanded you? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now, folks, can you imagine Joshua hearing that from God himself? I mean, if I was Joshua, I'd be pulling out my sword. I'd be diving into the Jordan. You know, it's, I, I'd be, don't worry about it. I could do this by myself. It's just me and God. I, I would be so pumped up. I, I, you know, I don't need anybody, God. All I need is you and me. Let's do this thing. You know why? Because you are my light in the darkness of the battle. My enemy, God, is literally fighting with blinders on. They don't realize who stands against them. See, they're looking at me, and they see this kind of, you know, 5'2", uh, 5'3", you know, five, five, a little bit scrawny, not that much, a little sinewy, but not, not a lot of muscles and stuff. They're looking at that guy, but they don't know who's behind that guy. See, they don't even understand that. They're in the darkness. You have opened my spiritual eyes like you did for, remember, Elijah's servant who when the king of Aram surrounded the city threatening to kill everybody inside you know Elijah prayed and his eyes were opened and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots all around him while at the same time God blinded the Aramean soldiers God they are in darkness I am in light now I know there are more of us than there are of, there are of, of them hallelujah 
right? He calls him, David calls God his light, and he calls him his stronghold. Verse 5, he says, For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. You know what he's saying? Is that, I mean, do you, you ever sleep out? Do you get any campers here? People like camping? See? Camping for us with the Chocolas is like a kind of a cheap motel. That's camping for us. That's the best we're going to do. We're not going out. We're just not doing it. Too many bugs. My daughters would freak. We never did that. Okay? But I admire all you who go out there and actually are with nature and doing that stuff. I get it. And I really appreciate that. But it, you went out there. You probably slept in a tent, right? Made of canvas, right? Not not real strong. In fact, if a bear decides, if a bear decides he wants to get in your tent, I got news for you. You're, you're, you're an hors d'oeuvre. I mean, basically, that's what's going to happen. That is really what's going to happen. Canvas is not stopping a powerful adversary. It's just not. But David says, I go into a pup tent, and it becomes for me a citadel of strength. No one, no one could ever get in it. Basically, if God is for me, who can be against me? I am literally, David is saying, bulletproof until I have lived out all the days that God has appointed for me on this earth. And when their wicked plans come to naught, God, as I know they will, I will step out from my indestructible can canvas pup tent and I will sing, how great is our God. We sang it last week, didn't we? Sing with me, how great is our God. And all, what? All the world will see how great, how great is our God. Name above all names. You are worthy of our praise, and my heart will sing what? How great is our God. And David says, God, that's where I'm at. I'm singing praises to you. And he says in verse 6, Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me at, their, at his sacred tent. I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. David says, God is my light in the darkness. He is a stronghold in which I can hide. And I don't need to fear anybody. I don't need to fear anything. I can be confident in God. And then he gives the key. He gives the key. He's writing from a position of true strength and true confidence and true trust. But then he answers the question, how did he get there? How, how did David get there? Folks, sometimes when the battle gets real hot around me, uh, I have a tendency to, depending how hot it gets, I have a tendency sometimes to open myself up more and more to outside counsel. Now, sometimes that's good, but sometimes if I go into semi-panic mode at times in my life, that's really not a good thing. It, it, sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't lead to good things. I, I, it, you know, when I get lots of advice on how to defend myself, how to get needed relief, how to turn the tide of battle, you know what? Uh, and, and like I said, as it, as it gets fiercer and the situation more desperate, a lot of times I am willing to almost listen to anybody. You know, the guy walking down the street, hey, what do you think of this? Let me tell you what's going on right now, and maybe you can give me a little advice. Because you know what? You just don't even know where to go anymore. The desperately ill people, and I have no people like this, uh, who would never, they've always been conventional. You know what? They never, every six months they get their teeth cleaned. If there's a cavity, everything stops, and they go and they get, the, that's the first thing. They're just, you know, they're just regimented. They're kind of people like that. They, 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 all of a sudden, they become desperately ill, and they read an article that was written up in USA Today about a homeopathic doctor in Guadalajara. And, and, and all of a sudden, she finds herself boarding a plane from Mexico. And often, the more counselors we go to, the more advice we receive, the more confused we get the more confused. And here's what I'm willing to bet. I think David did that sometimes too. But he learned. You know what he learned? Eventually, he learned the secret of the one thing. 
the secret of the one thing. Verse 4 says this, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. Folks, when I think about this, and I was, I was thinking, I was sitting back and I was thinking about this this week, the one thing, what, he says, one thing I've asked of God. Of all the things you could have asked for, I, I'm asking for, 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 for one thing. The one thing people that I have known in my life, people who are almost, they're almost, they almost have tunnel vision about something, especially if it's a good thing. I watch those people. Those are the people that a lot of times get things done. They, those are the people that really somehow make it, they see it happen in their life. Uh, these are people who will not be deterred very easily. They're, they, you know, if things are standing in their way, they find a way to go through and get around those things. And yet, being single-minded is very often in our culture not an admired value. It just isn't. Single-minded politicians, single-issue groups, people devoted to a select cause are more often criticized than anything else. And oftentimes, they can even be seen as bigoted or, God forbid, narrow-minded. Man, we don't want anybody saying that about us, right? I mean, that's like the worst. And you'd rather be a murderer than to be narrow-minded. And we generally tire of people who, whose goal seems to be bringing others around to their way of thinking or to their point of view. We see people like that often as a bit fanatical and even a bit boorish, and sometimes they are. Yet oftentimes, it's the single-minded person who moves history negatively or positively. Karl Marx was consumed with the idea of a classless society and achieving it at all costs. Adolf Hitler had a vision of a master race that would last for a thousand years. Who of us would not say that they moved history? They certainly did in a very negative way. But also there are those who move it in a very positive way. In early 1787, William Wilberforce, a young Christian and a member of the British Parliament, read Essay on Slavery. And from that moment on, his passion was to destroy the institution of slavery. And for the rest of his days, he worked tirelessly to see it happen. Even through, he, he, was, he was a sickly man, through many uneven bouts with health and sickness, many setbacks, he worked tirelessly to see that evil institution abolished in the British Empire. And he was fiercely opposed by many people whose fortune was in the slave trade. And they used all kinds of delaying tactics. Even, you know, politicians back then, I know you're not going to believe this, but politicians were on the take. I mean, people paid them to vote a certain way. I know, I understand, you know, that was a long time ago. Thank God we're way past stuff like that, okay? But, but back then, they would do stuff like that. And so, so they would pay these politicians to slow down Wilberforce. Do anything you can. Slow down his momentum. Throw as many roadblocks as you can in, in front of him. And, 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 you know, they would constantly try to slow down votes when they came before Parliament. But gradually, Wilberforce was able to turn the vague sentiment amongst the more privileged in the society into a real opposition and rise above political partisan politics and obtained the support to eliminate slavery. And in the spring of 1833, this is many years later, after he read that, that essay in 1787, in the spring of 1833, Wilberforce wrote one last petition to his colleagues. The parliamentary debate lasted three months, and on July 26, 1833, the Abolition of Slavery Bill passed its third reading in the House of Commons, and someone got up to run to Wilberforce's house to tell him he was too sick even to attend, that slavery in the British colonies had finally and forever been abolished. That single passion of his life, fueled by his evangelical faith, had been fulfilled. And three days later, on July 29th, Wilberforce died. But it would have never happened without this one single-minded man. I will do anything to see this end. Anything. 
The Apostle Paul in his determination to evangelize the West. Determined to know nothing but what? But Jesus Christ and him crucified. This brilliant man could have, done, could have written essays on almost any topic of his day. And he said, you know what? I'm putting that all aside and I'm going to say one thing. And I'm going to say it again and again and again until people listen. Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen from the dead and living at the right hand of God. He is the Savior. That was his one message. From that time, he was a single-minded individual. And folks, when single-minded people come along, often their voice can make a difference. They are unencumbered by indecision. They are uh, unencumbered many times by second-guessing that the rest of us go through. The psalmist asked God for one thing, and it was the one thing that was the key for him. It was the one thing that turned everything around. Something that he believed would turn the tide and make him the sort of man that would always be able to stand up under pressure and under fear that he regularly experienced from 101 different directions in his life. He wrote this. One thing I ask from the Lord, this one, this this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. See, he knew this was the key. Verse 4 was the key. He knew that if he only had one request granted by God, just one, this would be the one that would change it all. You know what? David did not ask God to uh, uh, impress upon his brain a greater understanding of how great God and how glorious God and how powerful God was. He already knew that. David didn't need a refresher course on God made the stars. He, he understood that from a young, a young boy. He penned some of his psalms, I am willing to bet, while out in the field as a shepherd, observing the glory of God and the might of God under the night sky. Now, he didn't need a greater understanding of the greatness or the majesty or the power or the glory that was his God. He was already convinced of that. But David knew that the answer to his strength in the battle did not lie in his brain. He understood that. Do you know what the key was? Do you know where it was? It wasn't here. It was here. It was the 18 inches, that little, that little distance between the brain and the heart that the truth of God needed to travel down. It was his heart. And whenever he ran into problems, whenever he, dis- he started to feel like he was losing faith, he was losing courage, and g- he was giving way to fear, it, his problem was not cognitive. It was emotional. It wasn't brain. It was heart. Whenever he gave way to the fear of the battle, David had pinpointed it was not a lack of understanding, but it was a loss of feeling. It was a loss of emotion. And so he, you know what he asked? He asked for the one thing. The one thing that he knew would keep him safe to be able, listen, to be able to gaze on the beauty that is God. That was it. To gaze on his beauty. Now, you, listen, folks. David is using extraordinarily uh, emotively charged words here. This is all emotional stuff that we're talking about with David here, okay? Sensory language. I do believe in the glory of God, but I actually have a sense on my heart that, you know, the glory has kind of gone out the door. I don't sense the sweetness of it all right now. I don't sense the power of it. I don't sense the reality of it in my heart. Whenever David felt that, you know where his courage went? The pup tent then became like, what am I out of my mind? I'm in a pup tent. They're gonna run, their chairs are gonna run right over this. See, whenever he lost the sweetness, whenever he lost the beauty of who God was, he was dead. He was dead. And so he asked for the one thing that would keep him safe, safe, to be able to gaze at the beauty that is God. Tim Keller uh, wrote on this one particular verse. And he said this, he said, it's one thing to know honey is sweet, 
It's another thing to be sensing the sweetness of the honey and tasting it. It's one thing to know God is glorious. It's another thing to gaze on his beauty. David is saying, I can't handle life simply by knowing God's glory or even obeying him. I have right doctrine, I have right practice, but I need this. That is, he needs to taste the sweetness of God. I need this, or my head will not be lifted up. I am not handling life without this. I was listening to a song as I drove in early this morning to church, and uh, the singer is singing a story, and I'm sure she's singing about her, herself, and she's singing uh, this believer about, uh, she's lamenting the fact that the invisible God seemed to at that moment be silent to her. And she's, you know, she's kind of reaching out and, you know, all she hears is cricket. Uh, so, you know, far removed from the experience of God. But she admits it was not for a lack of understanding. It was because she could not taste the sweetness anymore. It was a taste bud problem, not a brain problem. But when we taste his goodness, he truly becomes beautiful to us. And folks, let me tell you something. In the midst of battle, everything changes. Everything changes. There was an English missionary. It's a true story. Alan Gardner. And in 1851, Gardner, along with several others, were on their way to South America to start a brand new mission from their agency. And a storm came, unexpected storm. They were shipwrecked on a very remote island, literally. And he and his companions tried their best to stay alive. But uh, uh, unfortunately, in uh, not, not too much time, they died of both starvation and the lack of fresh, clean water. One by one, they died, far away from everybody they knew, far away from their loved ones, far away from home. And that has got to be a really terrible way to go, I would think. Now, sometime later, when a ship did come upon the island and discovered his and his companions' remains, they found right next to Alan Gardner's body his quiet time notebook, the thing, his ledger, his, his, his journal. And they opened it up to the very last page. And on the very last page, he had penned Psalm 3410, which says this, the lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And right underneath Psalm 3410, The last words that he penned were these. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of our God. I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of our God. As I breathe my last breath. He didn't write, I'm still holding on to the fact that God, he's powerful. I know he's powerful. I know, you know what? He could make a tree grow right here, be a nice coconut tree. We'll climb up that tree and, you know, we'll be living, you know, be like Gilligan's Island. We'll have clothes, different clothes every day and food and fruit and everything else. He didn't pray that. He didn't write, I am holding on to a belief that God is great. He wrote, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. God had given him, in the midst of the final battle, his sweetness. He had given him his sweetness. And only when we see that does God truly become beautiful to us. And we are then able to stand in the battle, which is unceasing. Now, I know there are some here, you know, and I've been there, done that. That's the only way I can know that there are people here like this. People here who are saying, you know what? 
I, I felt the sweetness at one time. I beheld the beauty. Once, I did. I think I can remember it. I don't even know what happened. I, it's not that I don't believe or trust in God. I know that the battle, though, is so overwhelming and it is so real that most days it's the only real thing to me. It's just the only real thing. John chapter 1. There's an amazing verse where the gospel writer writes this. He writes, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word dwelling literally is translated, should, should be translated, if you want to be literal about it, tented. Tented. Uh, the, word of, uh, the word became flesh and tented among us. Uh, the word became flesh and tented among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. What is John saying? You know what John is saying? John is saying that Jesus Christ is the tent. He is the tent. Jesus is the dwelling place of the Lord. He's the sacred tent that David was talking about where he found refuge. Jesus is the place where if you open your heart, you will taste the sweetness, you will see the beauty. What does that mean? What does it mean? It means that only when you see the life of Jesus, when you start to unpack his compassion, the compassion, compassionate Jesus, when you begin to look and see him healing everyone who would come to him, his patience with a bunch of knuckleheads who even at the end, after three and a half years, still were asking the wrong questions. Even after everything they had said, always forgiving. Peter goes, I've got I to forgive somebody three times. Jesus said, no, listen, you don't have to forgive them three times. Peter's going, well, that's good. No, no, you forgive them not even seven times. Seven times, seven. In other words, you forgive and you forgive. And you forgive. See, this is, this is the Jesus that the Gospels write about. And in the midst of his torture, the words of Jesus and the character of Jesus, and most of all, the death of Jesus on the cross, only when we see him dying out of love for us, not because we were beautiful, not because we were sweet, but because, folks, of his great love for us, because he delighted in us, because for no good reason, he desired you, and he desired me. That's why he stayed on the cross. And when I think about all that he did and all that he is, I begin to taste it again. It, it, it starts to come back a little. And as I read more, and as he speaks to me, all of a sudden, I can once again see the beauty. I can see the beauty. That's the tent to which we retreat on the battlefield. That's the place we go to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to which we find, in turn, protection from everything around us. Folks, the fear of the battle will turn when we gaze at the beauty that is our God. Verse 5 said this, For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high on a, on a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me at his sacred tent. I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. That's great stuff. Okay? Great stuff. Now, you know, what, you know what I would do if I was writing this? I'm writing the song. I'm, I'm ending after verse 5, right? Verse 6. I'm ending. That's it. You know, curtain call. Everybody come out. Take a bow. Everybody exit stage left. It's, it's perfect. He's strong. He recognizes why he's strong. And he's telling everybody, if you want what I have, do this. But he doesn't end there. He doesn't end there. He goes on to verse Seven. He's gazing at the sweetness that is God. But then he goes on to verse 7. And in verse 7, David is crying. 
David is crying out to God. He is distraught. An army comes against me. Come on, let's go. I'm ready for it. He's crying to God and weeping before the Lord because all of a sudden his heart is filled with fear again. Did he read what? Did he even read his own stuff that he wrote a couple of verses before? And he's begging God to hear him. He's begging God to be merciful to him. And you go, wait, what? what? You know, this is one through, the one through three guy who wrote verses one through three. And then you think about it. I was thinking about it. It makes absolute sense. You know why it makes sense? Because when we draw near to God, when we begin to taste the sweetness, when we begin to see the beauty, when we begin to praise him for what he is, for who he is, not for what he can provide for me, Somebody gets upset at that. There is an enemy that doesn't like to hear praise come from the lips of God's people. And he goes into action. When Isaiah sought the face of God, he went into the temple and he began to get a sight of the holiness of God. And so he, you know, he was afforded this incredible view of the holiness of God. Now you would think he'd be coming out doing, right? High fives to everybody. You got to see what I just saw. You will not believe it. I will never de uh, deviate 1% to the left or to the right ever again. That was not what he experienced. You know what he experienced when he went into the temple? He said this, woe is me. I am undone. I am, man, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You know what? The same thing happened to David. The enemy says to him, how dare you think you a murderer. How dare you think that you can come into the presence of a holy God with the life that you've led, with the things that you have, the things that you struggle with right now, David. Nobody knows about it. I know. I see you. See, you're gonna, you're gonna. You think you can go into His presence? You think you can praise His name? You're a hypocrite. And I think he begins to freak out in verse 7. I think he begins to panic. I think he begins to try and console. And you know what he said? What do we do when, when we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, if you were here? Uh, what, what do we do when, when we want to console ourselves? We start talking to ourselves. We start talking to our own souls. And he says in verse 8, my heart says of you, my, my heart says of you, seek his face. This is David talking to himself. Okay, all right, what am I going to do? You know what? I'm in a pup tent. These guys are coming. This, ain't a, this is not a good situation. Seek his face, he says to his soul. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Hey, remember, God, remember when you used to help me? You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Listen, I know. My parents, they were, they were good, but you know what? I, I have faith in you. I really do. I, he's almost trying to convince himself. He's almost trying to shove what he knew here and what he experienced here. He's trying to get it down into his heart. He's trying to shove it down into his heart. And in that moment, I get the sense he just ain't feeling it. I think he knows the words are true, but the sweetness has gone. The beauty has evaporated. He was in shape brain-wise, but he was a mess emotionally. And I would say it could be because he was missing a piece. And I think I can say that when we get like that, we may have been missing the same piece that David was missing. The sweetness. We're missing the beauty. David says, I don't deserve to experience your sweetness. I, 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 I deserve to be turned out. I deserve to have your face hidden from me forever, God. I deserve to be forsaken. But you know what? David's greater son, Jesus Christ, was a perfect servant. He was a perfect son. And on the cross, he said, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus say that? Why did he say that? Because he was at that moment taking the punishment David understood he deserved. And that we all, I think, all deep down understand we deserve. Jesus Christ was forsaken so that you can be taken in. That is, that is sweet stuff. That's beautiful stuff. That, 
That plays well here, but I'll tell you where it really plays. It plays really great here. Really, really great. Jesus Christ lost face so that we could one day face God. Jesus Christ was turned out so that we could be brought in. And what was it? What was in it for him? What was in it for Jesus? You know what was in it? You. Me. Why would Jesus go through all that? What did he get out of it? You know what he got out of it? Us. He got us out of it. He must have been hanging from the cross, and he saw us down the corridor of history, and he saw that one day we would become, because of what he was doing, beautiful and sweet. And he would do the work. He must have seen a beauty that we could not even see ourselves. We were beautiful to him. We were his creation, and he saw us as beautiful. He saw us as we were in our sin, but one day what we would be. And folks, he basically was getting nothing out of it. And he dies on the cross strictly out of the love for the beauty that we would be. And when we gaze on him, we see him dying for us. We realize that he was thinking of us. You can't help but be moved by the beauty of it all. Because, folks, the fear of the battle, it will turn when we gaze at the beauty that is the Lord. David said in verse 13, i close with this. I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Christian friends, Christian friends. Listen to me. Maybe this morning you're hearing God for the first time in a long time say, seek my face through the words of David in Psalm 27. I want you to once again seek my face. And he says that because he knows that the fear that we are ensconced in, the battle that is raging will turn when we gaze at his beauty. Maybe today your wait is over. Maybe today's the day. We need to gaze upon him. We need to look at the beauty that is our God. And we need to remember to never give up. The beauty is there. The sweetness is ready to be tasted. The fear of the battle will turn when we gaze on the beauty that is our Lord. You can do it. You can get back to it today. 